when we fell down, I think he hid his face on the coffee table. He might have hit his face on my foot. Did you do that? No, I did not do that. I did grab Kathy's hat, put it on Kathy's head, grab Kathy's coat, and push her towards the door. I did not want to be a daddy. Um, my childhood had been a disaster. Did you ever cut her off? Did you ever cut off her credit card? Never did anything like that. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. Today, Wednesday, August 11, Robert Durst took the stand for a second day as Dick DeGaron continued his direct examination. Over the course of about four and a half hours, DeGaron took Durst on a trip down memory lane starting with his honeymoon in 1973 and concluding with the days just after Kathy's disappearance in 1982. In this episode, we'll present the highlights of his testimony and examine the areas in which his narrative diverges from prior witness testimony that the jury has heard and from past statements that Robert Durst has made. That's coming up after the break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Dick DeGaron began this morning by picking up where he left off yesterday afternoon, in the early 1970s, during Robert and Kathy Durst's honeymoon. Having reflected on the timeline of events, Robert Durst made a correction to his earlier testimony. Were you incorrect in what you said yesterday? Well, yesterday, I said when Kathy and I traveled around the country, you know, van, we stopped in San Francisco, and we saw Tommy Durst, and we saw Susan Berman. And then when I rethought it, I corrected myself. I said I couldn't have seen Susan Berman if she was in New York. Well, now I'm going to correct myself again. Susan Berman did not move to New York until 1976. So in 1973, we did see her in San Francisco. And my recollection the first time around was correct. Durst then reiterated his earlier testimony that he was straightforward with Kathy about his desire not to have children. We were always discussing whether we would have children. From probably six months after we met, and Kathy moved to Middlebury, Vermont, to be with me, we talked about getting married. And we talked about not having children, but not having children. 
And I was, was very, very much against having children. I felt that I was too much of a responsibility. I did not want to be a daddy. Um, my childhood had been a disaster. I did not want the same thing to happen to my child. However, he seemed to demonstrate a deeper level of understanding for Kathy's perspective on becoming a parent. How old was Kathy during this time? 19. And when I look back on it, thinking that's this 19-year-old girl woman would give up everything she always planned for. All just, just like that. Kathy had three older sisters. They all got married, had children, became housewives. Kathy babysat for all of them. And that's what Kathy had planned on doing her whole life. And when I think about it now, the way she just kind of, well, and we won't have children, gave up on it. I look back on it as being totally unreal. I couldn't have just accepted it. Clearly, Kathy was not going to just accept not having children. Durst later provided a never-before-heard anecdote about why Kathy wanted to become a doctor. Was there a point in time when Kathy made a decision she wanted to go to medical school? Yes. What does this event have to do with that, that you just started to describe? So we were standing by the Hudson River with a mob all around us, and Kathy started getting sick, and she was hot, and her temple was throbbing, and she said, when this happens, I know from my nursing school that it means something's wrong with my spine. So we wanted to go to an emergency room. It must have taken us four, 45 minutes to walk two blocks to where the crowd would thin out so we could get a taxi. We went to hospital for special surgery. They were the nearest hospital. We walked into the emergency room. And as soon as the intern saw Kathy, he immediately said she needs to be an inpatient. Kathy was diagnosed as having spinal meningitis. Spinal meningitis, a terrible disease, but it basically had been wiped out in America and in Europe and in other rich places. They started asking me questions about whether or not we had recently visited one of a number of African countries that I had barely heard of, which of course we had not done. They never did figure out how Kathy got spinal meningitis. What they do is they don't, they have to anesthetic general anesthesia, and they poke a hole in the spine 
and they let the excess fluid flow out. She was there for three days. When she got out of the hospital, she was sure she wanted to become a doctor. Many witnesses, including Kathy's classmates who became doctors, have testified that Kathy was a smart, hardworking medical student. Although the Dursts appear to have a connection to the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, the general consensus appears to be that Kathy was accepted on her own merits. Today, however, Durst suggested that their father, Seymour, assisted Kathy in getting into medical school by placing a call to his associate, who happened to be the largest donor to Einstein at that time. So we told Dad one night about our routine of applying to medical schools one a week. Did you know whether or not uh, the Durst family or the Durst organization or your father or your grandfather had any connection uh, to Einstein? That's all I knew. I knew that my grandfather, Joseph Durst, was a quote-unquote founder of Howard Einstein Medical Center. I have no idea how much you had to donate to be a founder, but we're talking about substantial dollars. So when Kathy brought up, Dad said, have you applied to Albert Einstein? Kathy said that she was doing the easiest ones first, and she hadn't gotten to Albert Einstein yet. So Dad said, apply to Albert Einstein, and I will call Jack Weiler. Who was Jack Weiler? Jack Weiler was the largest donor to Albert Einstein. So when Dad called him up and said, my daughter-in-law has applied to Albert Einstein, I don't know where the conversation went, but I believe that that is the reason Kathy was eventually accepted at Albert Einstein. You, you're, you're not sure of that. You don't know that for sure. No, I don't know that. Another area in which Durst's testimony seemed to contradict what the jury has previously heard was the incident involving Peter Schwartz. Schwartz once attended a party at Bob and Kathy's Manhattan apartment on 86th Street. He testified back in 2017 to an encounter with Durst that sent him to the emergency room. He was at the entrance, the door to the room, holding his paper. And uh, you know, he described as a very agitated state. Uh, while he was standing there, he looked at Kathy, and then he looked over at me, and he said, well, you're the only man here. He rushed forward and kicked me in the eye. I was sitting on the floor with my back against my ear, and when he rushed forward, even though I, was, uh, I had my knees up and my arms over my knees, he kicked between my legs and between my arms and uh, kicked me under the right eye, fracturing it, fracturing the bone. In contrast, Durst accused Schwartz of being Kathy's drug dealer and described the same incident as follows. Peter Schwartz was standing up, working on one of the dollar bills to roll it up. I said to him, it's late. You're the only guy that's still here. You should leave. He said, 
that you kicked him. Did you kick him? Not when we fell down. I think he hit his face on the coffee table. He might have hit his face on my foot. Quote, he might have hit his face on my foot, end quote. In another moment that seemed to contradict earlier testimony, Durst referenced an incident with Kathy at their Riverside Drive apartment. In March of 2020, Ann Anderson Doyle, who along with her husband lived across a rooftop garden from Bob and Kathy, testified that one night in October 1981, Kathy climbed out a window seeking refuge after a troubling instance of domestic violence. She would be disheveled. She would be... It would be a little bit like a stray dog that would come out of the rain and she would just want to get away and... um, and it would, I would say it would have been hugely embarrassing for her, but she probably felt that she had to, yeah, she, she felt that she, that I was, that she could trust me and that I would not, I would let her in and we'd, we'd talk to each other and stuff. Well, from that night, my specific memory was uh, that they'd had a fight about the signing some kind of document and that the fight had gotten out of control. And she was subsequently fearful for her for her life. And stated that sometime during the latter part of September or the beginning of October, Catherine did leave her apartment via the bedroom window in her PJs and walked around the outside balcony to Anne's bedroom window and was crying. Anne let her in and Catherine stated that Bob had beat her and that he wanted to kill her. She further stated that he had a gun and was afraid of being shot. Meanwhile, here's how Durst described that incident today. There was an incident described by uh, Ann Anderson that happened at Riverside Drive. You know the incident I'm talking about? Yes. All right. Did you have an argument or a fight? I did not think so, but my doorbell rang, and whatever his, I think his name was Kevin Doyle, and husband, Kevin Doyle was out in the elevator foyer, and he said, your wife's in our apartment, and she says, you're beating her up and she's afraid of you. I had no idea that Kathy was not in her study. Seemingly, Kathy had either walked out our door to the terrace or, according to Ann Doyle, she had climbed out, <coughs> she had climbed out the window onto the terrace and walked. walked back to the Doyle's apartment. 
Was it necessary for her to crawl out of a window to get to the terrace? No. What happened? <laughs> I went back to bed. Did Kathy come home? Yes. This became a standing joke. Someone, I don't believe a lawyer, probably Gilberta, had convinced Kathy that if Kathy could show that I was physically abusing her, she would get a bigger settlement if we ever got divorced. So Kathy was doing these various things that she thought would impress a judge. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There was one section of Durst's testimony where Durst seemed to acknowledge abusive behavior towards Kathy as he had done previously. Here is how Durst assessed the accuracy of the scene in the movie All Good Things that depicts Ryan Gosling's character, a thinly veiled version of Robert Durst, pulling Kirsten Dunst's character, a thinly veiled version of Kathy, by the hair. That was close. I've seen that described three or four different ways by three or four different people. In one scene, I grabbed Kathy by her hair and dragged her out of the house, like a caveman or something. Did you do that? No, I did not do that. I did grab Kathy's hat, put it on Kathy's head, grab Kathy's coat, and push her towards the door. Meanwhile, here is how Durst reacted to the same scene when he sat down with Andrew Jarecki to record the DVD commentary to All Good Things. This is close. Seen the story about the hair two different ways. One way, I drag her out of the house by her hair. The other way, I grab her hair and a big chunk comes out. Either one is close enough. As the day wore on, Durst offered an account of the collapse of his marriage that seemed designed to elicit sympathy from the jurors and that contradicted much of the testimony that jurors had previously heard. Did you ever cut her off? Did you ever cut off her credit cards? Never did anything like that. Did you cut off? three months, every other month, the banker would call me and tell him your wife's account is an overdraft. And each time I authorize him to transfer enough money from my account to Kathy's account so that he would not have to bounce a check. 
was it necessary for Kathy to take out a school loan? She took out a school loan unbeknownst to me. She had obviously spent the money that she was supposed to use for rent and the rest of it for something else. These statements from Durst stood in stark contrast to comments from other witnesses, including this story from Bob's brother, Thomas. On a scale of zero to 100, with zero being the cheapest person you ever met, and 100 being the most generous, based on your experience growing up and knowing your brother, how would you rate your brother? I, I believe about minus 50, if, if the scale goes that low. And when you say that your brother was cheap, can you describe what it is that makes you say that? He came to my house with his new wife, and uh, he had her on food stamps. Do you recall, Mr. Durst, how it was that you became aware that Bob had his wife on food stamps? She asked me to take her shopping, and uh, food stamps at that time, you could not buy feminine hygiene products or cigarettes or wine. And so she went to the checkout and could not buy what she wanted, and I paid for it. All she had was food stamps. Finally, DeGarren asked Durst about the final weekend in January 1982, the days just before Kathy disappeared. Durst explained that, in part, the reason for their trip was to bring their dog, Igor, to the vet on Monday, February 1st. He described a mostly lazy, relaxing weekend in their South Salem cottage leading up to Igor's appointment, with a couple of spats between Bob and Kathy, mostly relating to whether or not Kathy would visit Gilberta Najami. Kathy did, in fact, drive to Gilberta's house on the evening of January 31st, interrupting her family dinner. Durst testified to a phone call he had with Kathy in which Kathy agreed to come home. Okay, so how did the phone call get resolved? Phone call got resolved. I insisted she come back to South Salem. Was there any discussion on the phone call about Peter Schwartz? No. DeGarren's reference to Peter Schwartz is likely in response to an allegation that Kathy was upset that Schwartz had dropped his civil suit against Durst after the incident in which Durst allegedly kicked Schwartz in the face. Schwartz described a frantic phone call he received from Kathy on January 31, 1981. Did Kathy ask you about the status of your civil case against Bobby Durst? Yes, she did. What did you tell her, Fanny? Schwartz then read aloud his handwritten notes that he had taken contemporaneously. Uh, Kate Durst called me about 6.30 on 1.31.82 till about uh, till 6.45. Asked me if I was made an offer by R.D., lawyer. I said he discussed it with me. Did I pay all my bills? Am I satisfied with how it came out? and I should sue. She said R.D. wrote her a letter asking for her help in getting rid of this case. Told her the case was dismissed. Someone was listening in on the line. 
Here's how Schwartz described Kathy's demeanor on this phone call. Really cool that she was getting more and more, I would describe this, aggravated that she wasn't getting all the answers that she wanted. After Kathy returned to the South Salem house that night, Durst has said in a previous interview that he and Kathy got into a fight. In an interview with Andrew Jarecki, Durst admitted that this was a violent argument. She wants to go to the city, I'll take her to the train station. She wants to go to the city, she can call a cab, but she's not taking the car. That was an argument. Was that argument just a verbal argument? No, that was a pushing, shoving argument. Today, Durst's testimony regarding this incident seemed to downplay the acrimony and made no reference to the couple's argument becoming physical. So when I said, give me the keys, she looked at the coat, and then we both made a headlong dive to grab the coat. Where was the coat? It was draped over the couch, back, the back of the couch. What, what happened Kathy next? got one arm. I got the other arm, we both pulled, and a bunch of stuff came out of the pockets, including the keys. So I picked up the keys and said, I'm going to go out and disable the car. What did you do next? I went outside, opened up the hood, and unplugged one of the battery cables. Durst proceeded to tell his version of events on the last night he saw Kathy. He drove Kathy to the Katona train station, waited with her in the parking lot, and watched her walk onto the train platform. When the train arrived, the doors opened and the passengers on the platform filed onto the train. When the train pulled away, the platform was empty. Later, Durst acknowledged lying to Detective Mike Strzok about having a drink that evening with his neighbor, Bill Mayer, and calling Kathy to confirm she made it back to their Riverside Drive apartment. He confirmed that he did neither of those things. Durst also gave his account of the days following Kathy's disappearance. Notably, on the night of Monday, February 1st, 1982, Durst testified, he met up with a friend to see the movie Shoah. However, Shoah was not released until 1985. Joining us now to discuss the day's testimony from Robert Durst is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Thanks, Carrie. So, Charlie, what stuck out to you today? What was it about day two of Robert Durst's testimony that caught your ear? First, I I don't ever want to be accused of being one-sided about this, but I thought that Bob gave a brilliant narrative, rich in detail. Uh, His command of the past 40 or 50 years was, was really something to behold. However, I think there were as many falsehoods in there as there are raisins in Raisin Bran. He said that Kathy spent six years in nursing school, but we have as evidence Kathy's academic records. And it's very clear she was four years at nursing school and then went directly to med school. What were some of the other factual inaccuracies, or we could call them as they are, lies that Bob told today? He talked about how Kathy and Susan were best friends. This would have been news to Kathy if she were still around to hear it. Susan was the person that filed an affidavit 
that repeated the story that Bob was telling, that Kathy was a sort of drug-addled gold digger. Number two, I think Bob was mistaken about Susan's book. It was published in 1981, at the very end of 1981, not 1980. And he should know because he gave her a, a book party. He also said that he started having affairs in October of 1981 when he found out that Kathy had had an affair. But that sort of skips over the fact that in 1976, many years earlier, Kathy had discovered a bunch of Polaroids that tumbled out of a book at her apartment. And Bob had been taking photographs of their medicine cabinet and her closet. Why? She asked him. He said, well, he was having affairs and he didn't want the women to know that he was married. So he would take out all the things in the apartment, like her clothing and whatever she had in the medicine cabinet and move it. But he wanted to put it back in the right place. This is not me saying this. This is what Bob has told us. And then, of course, there's the famous incident where he came in to a, a small party and kicked a guy by the name of Peter Schwartz in the face, breaking his orbital bone. But in Bob's account of that, it appears that Mr. Schwartz actually attacked Bob's foot with his face. It's astounding. Made me wonder whether when we get to the Morris Black part of the testimony, he will say that Morris Black's face ran into his bullet. <laughs> Brittany, you picked one up just by a quick Google search. I did. I thought it was interesting that he had made plans to see a movie and remembered it so well. And of course, Shoah, which is a, a 10 plus hour movie, you know, you wouldn't forget seeing that. Unfortunately for Bob, according to IMDb, Shoah came out in 1985, and he was describing a night in 1982. Charlie, I was wondering if you could talk about inconsistencies that you might have noticed in the testimony that dealt with the weekend leading up to Kathy's disappearance. Had you heard the story about Igor needing a visit to the vet? The thing with Igor is not new, but Bob also said that after Kathy disappeared, he went to a closing where he and his brother were buying a property just outside of Times Square. The only problem with that is that, according to his brother Douglas, he never showed up. And his signature was needed on the paperwork, so the transaction had to be delayed. His account of that few days after Kathy disappeared also sidesteps the collect phone calls from the Jersey Shore to the Durst organization. Bob's visit to the Jersey Shore also has raised suspicions among investigators for many years that he may have disposed of Kathy near the Jersey Shore. Charlie, I want to reprise a question that I raised yesterday, which is, what is Dick DeGuerin's strategy here? I'm not sure. A lot of these things that we identify very quickly as falsehoods, I'm not sure why Dick hasn't picked up on them. Yeah, I'm going to fall back on what I said yesterday. The more I hear, the more I think that DeGaron is pretty much winging it. Anyway, one more day of testimony this week, and then hopefully DeGaron will wrap up his direct examination and we'll turn it over to the prosecution for their cross-examination. And I know we're all looking forward to that. Charlie, thanks again. Brittany, thanks again. And we'll look forward to continuing our coverage for you on the trial of Robert Durst. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.